The country of Indonesia. Do they like me in Indonesia? 100% confident Indonesia will prevail. Hi everyone, this is Jackie Baker coming to you from Murdoch University, which stands on the unceded land of the Wajuk people of the Noongar Nation. Every year in mid-September, the Indonesia Project runs the Indonesia Update, a much-awaited rundown on the freshest political, economic and social issues in contemporary Indonesia. For its 39th update, the topic is gender equality and diversity. It's the first gender-focused update in 20 years. The last one was 2001, and lots has changed since then. An important milestone in Indonesia's struggle for gender equality was one in April this year, when Parliament passed the Elimination of Sexual Violence Bill, or the Uu TPKS into law. And behind it all was the tireless work of organisations like Komnas Perempuan, Indonesia's National Commission for the Eradication of Violence Against Women, an independent state body working for women's rights in Indonesia. Founded in 1998, Komnas Perempuan is one of the winds of the Reformasi movement. And we're here today with its head, Andy Yentriani. Welcome to Talking Indonesia, Andy. Hello, Jackie. Very honored to be here. So, Andy, can you tell me about the successes of this bill? What does it do to address sexual violence in Indonesia? Yes, I must actually argue that this is one of the pinnacles of Indonesian women's leadership uh, in policy advocacy. It actually settled a lot of breakthroughs uh, for the victims, particularly in the rule of evidence and rule of procedures, uh, besides the fact that it actually named at least nine new sexual violence as a crime within the Indonesian criminal uh, system, which includes sexual harassment, both physically and non-physically, and also an online sexual violence, uh, sexual torture, forced uh, marriage, which can cover also harmful tradition for child marriage or uh, other forms of forced marriage. Um, it also cover uh, forced sterilization and forced uh, contraception. And I think the other uh, significant breakthrough is actually to recognize uh, the right of immunity for the victims who report their cases because this is one of the hindrances, if it's not the main hindrance, for the women uh, to report the cases because they are afraid of being threatened, uh, being sued by the perpetrators. So this right to immunity is very important. That's an incredible outcome. Can you tell me more about these nine types of sexual violence that you mentioned. Why was it so important to have that codified in law? Hmm. Sexual harassment uh, has been increasingly reported, but uh, under the existing penal code, it's not actually recognized. We used to have an article of what's called unwanted acts against someone, but it has been annulled by the Constitutional Court several years ago. Hence, there is a no article at all in the penal code that can go to it. Um, we do have an article in the penal code on obscenity, but it doesn't really cover the harassment 
assessment itself, particularly when it is conducted at the public spaces like being robbed or being uh, verbally harassed. So uh, the harassment article within the new law is very pivotal because then it provide a space for the victims to claim for the justice and recovery. And on sexual torture, the other uh, crime that being recognized under this new law, we only have it under uh, the law 2000 on crimes against humanity. But it means that it has to go through all of this proving uh, whether it's systematic or, or widespread, whilst uh, sexual torture can be actually occurred individually and being committed by officials. And uh, the other one is on sexual slavery, which is also recognized under the Crimes Against Humanity article within the law on human rights courts. But again, it has to be proven as part of the systematic or widespread um, context, whilst according to our data, sexual slavery can also occur within a private seizing of liberty of a person. Um, on forced marriage, uh, we also have the data on that, uh, which also include uh, the child marriage, particularly those then being married off to pay the debts uh, of the family. But we also have uh, in several regions in Indonesia, an adoption for marriage. So girls are going to be abducted from their homes and they will be kept uh, for like a night and then being forced to marry with the abductor. It's very difficult for them to get away from this marriage because once they are already being kept one night, then it's assumption by, uh, by the society uh, that they have already a sex intercourse. So it means that they will go through all of the stigma. Hence, married is the only way of of getting out of the stigma itself. I can go on and on with all of this nine, but uh, I mean like forced contraception and forced sterilization is haven't been recognized under the penal code. And it is particularly uh, important for women who are living with HIV AIDS because uh, most of the time they are not informed that they're being sterilized or they're being partially informed that uh, the only way of not transferring uh, their disease is by uh, being sterilized. And this forced sterilization and forced contraception prohibition is also important for women with disability, particularly those who are mental uh, disabilities, because most of the time they are not uh, being informed uh, and the decision is made by their own parents. So I actually hope that this new law will cover also uh, some specific vulnerabilities. Uh, these are incredible victories, given that it's been so hard to reform the penal code and that that seems to be completely stuck in Parliament. Was it a, a hindrance to getting this law passed to have the penal code uh, still stuck in draft form? Well, we actually do strive for like 12 years for this law or if I can say actually for 20 years yeah because prior to the suggestion to have the bill on sexual violence there are several women's organizations that uh, actually propose for having a specific uh, law on rape and also on uh, sexual harassment at work uh, place. Uh, in 2010 Komnas Puan did a review on the data that we compiled from various uh, organizations that work with women victims of violence 
And uh, that evaluation actually revealed the fact that the increasing number of uh, sexual violence being reported. Um, unfortunately, after five years of data collection and also the drafting of the bill, we actually face a group of uh, women and also uh, supported by other groups that actually call for not only regulation on sexual violence, but also prohibiting sexualities uh, within the, the, the same uh, laws, which is actually contradict the concept of sexual violence itself. It means that they want to also prohibit adultery, for instance, which for us is consensual. It's completely different from sexual violence concept where consent is, is basically being trespassed. Hence, because we uh, reject this proposal, the sexual violence bill was actually stigmatized as a feminist westernized agenda but fortunately also i mean like it's database bill uh, it, i mean like based on data so it's very difficult for those who reject it to also claim that it is not important and we gained also supports cross generation cross sectors i think i can say that this could be one of the most substantively participated by Indonesian public all sectors, including people working in the art sectors, uh, the universities, mass media, all, yeah, and even companies, I mean, like private sectors, also tap into uh, these issues. Who were those groups and how, were, how was their opposition to the bill ultimately overcome? Mm. This group is actually led by a very specific group that have an agenda of introducing a more rigid regulation in the based of religion and morality in Indonesia. And this is actually linked to the political setting even from the new order regime time. So it's prior to uh, the reformation era where certain Islam groups are being uh, marginalized by the new order and find the new avenue within the reformation utilizing all of the mechanisms in the democratic system namely the election system as well as drafting the legislation at both national and local laws so we have observed the increased number of bylaws that regulating morality in the name of religion such as regulation on veil or prohibition of intimacy and even criminalizes prostitution with a very specific tax that targeting on on women due to the way they dress or their gesture in the public spaces uh, they are supported also by a particular party. So uh, these are actually the groups. But in the same time, I think to some extent within the parliament and the public that actually also think that the morality crisis is really something that needs to be put into the legislation of sexual violence bill. So their argument is also being supported by not necessarily uh, Islam-based political parties, uh, but can also be any parliament members from nationalist parties. Fortunately, we have at least eight political parties that supports the, the, the bill so that it can be issued uh, by this year. And what eventually drove that political support for that bill? If this bill was 12 years in the making, even more, why now? How did you manage to galvanise political support now? 
I think it's just the 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 fact that it is bottom up. Yeah, uh, we actually gain the interest of the mass media, and hence they did a full coverage of sexual violence. In the same times, because of the campaign, it provides the spaces and confident uh, for the victims to come forward and report the cases. So in 2020-2021, even during the COVID-19 time, we get huge cases of sexual violence committed against students in Pasantren or the boarding schools. Yeah, So... All in all, it actually also supported by the students. Uh, Ministry of Education issued a new regulation to prevent and handle cases of violence, sexual violence in the higher education regulation means. So you got also supports from students who was who are facing sexual harassment on the daily basis, particularly experienced by female students. In the same time, you got everyone interested and they feel like they have a stake on this bill. And also, uh, I, I forgot to mention that this uh, law is also covered online sexual violence. Within the pandemic time, the, the cases are increasingly significantly. And um, I think that it's just... It's just a momentum uh, that the parliament find themselves that they need to pass this law or else it's not going to be passed ever. Yeah. So you mentioned that a lot of the social reckoning with sexual violence occurred in the field of education, tertiary education, but also Islamic education. Why do you think that is? Discussion about consent and sexual violence has been bubbling away in the tertiary sector for a long time. It is surprising the way that uh, sexual violence is now being discussed and uncovered within the Islamic education sector, where obviously students are a lot more vulnerable given that they live in place and there are kind of sacralized relationships between the teacher and the student. So it's, it's quite remarkable to see that transformation occurring within the Islamic schools? Well, I think it's not that it's increasingly now. It's probably because it's it's getting more recognition. Hence, the students themselves and the parents are finding themselves in more confidence in reporting the case. And actually, it, it is still a, a, a work in progress, I must say. Like the Pasantra and the boarding hall, uh, schools are actually under the supervision of Ministry of Religious Affairs, not the Ministry of Education. So it has dubbed two systems that work in a completely different nature. And we are just saying that regardless who is actually supervising it, we need to ensure that there is an adequate infrastructure to ensure uh, the students can can enjoy uh, the, the education in a safe environment. I keep saying this, Indonesia also has the privilege as a country where the majority of population are Muslim, but uh, we are not stating ourselves as an Islamic country, right? So it also provides a, a more space for a civic discussion regarding the rights that actually recognized under the constitution. We also have the privilege of having progressive clerics, even female ulamas, within a very traditional settings that also go against the sexual violence committed by prominent uh, leaders in the boarding schools. So that also give more confidence to the society to pick up this issue or else I think it won't be the case 10 or 15 years ago. Yeah. 
Can you tell me more, Andy, about the role of the police or the presumption of the role of the police within this legislation? What does this legislation expect police to do and what will that require for the police institution? Mm. It's actually very exciting to notice that the law recognizes that one of the hindrances for victims of sexual violence to get access to justice is actually the perspective and the behavior of law enforcers. In 2017, the Supreme Court issued a guidelines prohibiting judges to have gender bias in examining women's cases, and it's followed by high office of prosecutors. Unfortunately, the police does not have the guidelines. But the new law actually adopting that guidelines and stating that the prohibition for gender bias and revictimization of the victims who reports the cases. And it actually requires all law enforcers to be trained specifically on how to handle cases of sexual violence. It also requires the police to work with the counselor to understand the situation and the needs of the victims. It also demands the police to reform itself on how they think about or or they collect uh, the evidence uh, because physical evidence is necessary but no longer the only requirement uh, for that, including the cases of rape. The the law actually also stating that all of this rule of procedures and uh, rule of evidence apply to any other sexual offenses that being regulated in other uh, other laws. Um, say now uh, the police should actually take into account the testimony of the victims that are supported by the other information they can collect from witnesses. The new law also recognizes medical report. It also recognizes the certificates uh, from psychiatrists or even clinical psychologists for victims of sexual violence to be considered as uh, one of the body of evidence. Uh, so the whole way of thinking, behaving uh, for the victims and also to actually install um, a recovery for the victim from the very beginning of the report is actually required now under the new law. How did you think through how to manage the role of the police within this legislation? And by that I mean, you know, you mentioned that all police police um, officers need to be trained in understanding and managing cases of sexual violence. I mean, another path that the legislation might have taken was establishing women's and children's units, for instance, where uh, cases for sexual violence are clustered into those units as opposed to a, a broad or mainstreamed approach. How did you think through these issues as an activist, uh, a women's activist, designing the policies? I think it's actually because we try try and error kind of things, yeah. Um, Komnas Perempuan established a forum for service providers back in the year 2000. And uh, the first concept that we do is on integrated services. From year to year, we have a refuse on how it is actually implemented and how it is actually linked to uh, the way law enforces, particularly the police, because they are the first responder to the reported case. It's not like a night 
might think that we we think through, right? It's more like a 20 years of experience uh, working with the victims and trying to improve the system. We also work with the police, particularly the, the special unit. And uh, we are happy to have the new directors from the head of the police to actually strengthen this unit to a specific directorate because nowadays they are under the general criminal directorate, right? So having it as a specific directorate may give them a better authority and also infrastructure because it has been set up until the district levels. So there are like more than 400 specialized units for this. And by having the special directorates, it means that we are going to also encourage a more female police officers and uh, that will be a new waves for uh, female leaderships within the police uh, institution itself uh, so yeah I don't know whether I really answer your question but it's it's certainly not that review by itself or you know in a one day or two kind of study to come up with that plan but it's really more than two decades of uh, working with the victims and by the works of many of our partners throughout the regions. Yeah, that's really interesting. I mean, I think in in many countries around the world, there's a, a reckoning about what is the role of police within society and are they addressing crime in a way that is victim-centred? You know, Indonesia has had an ongoing police reform for, you know, 20 years plus, and I think the results are extremely mixed. And yet so much still relies on the police in order to bring about progressive social change. I mean, it's hard to get justice for victims of sexual violence when justice itself is impossible on any measure, right? Like the the police are not functioning very well in criminal justice um, cases, let alone ones that are fraught with social tensions like sexual violence. Correct. And I think one of the challenge now, since it's mandatory under the new law to have the training of the law enforcers, uh, particularly the police, right, because they're the first responders, is actually to develop a monitoring and evaluation mechanism or systems, how well the training is, how it's going to be implemented and how it's going to change uh, the the impact for the victims. Uh, because this is one of the thing, yeah? I mean, like if you look at the Indonesian CEDO reports, for instance, the, the reports for the CEDO committee, uh, the Indonesian government claimed that we have trained this this number of police personnel, prosecutor officers, but why, why do we still have this kind of challenges on the field where even the trained officers are still not actually take the report seriously. We have cases where victims reported the case 14 years ago and did not actually go anywhere. So I think the the challenge is not only to train uh, massively, but also how to install adequate monitoring and evaluation process on the impact of the training itself. But I think for feminists we're stuck between a rock and a hard place because you need the coercion and the authority of the state and yet the state contributes to, if not being the perpetrator in these kinds of crimes. I know. Uh, (laughs) 
I mean, like, you know what? I always told my friends and colleagues, in Comnas Prom 1, we do not have the privilege of being not optimistic. <laughs> How should I say it? Um, Yeah, it's 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 bleak indeed. It's bleak indeed. Uh, I must say that even on the delay of process uh, for reported cases, it's linked directly to the corruption within uh, the legal system itself um, the the fact that we do not have enough adequate monitoring is also linked to that um, and and many other styles like yeah every now and then we have cases where the police actually I mean like how should I say it they, they are the problem themselves in the same time, you should be part of the solution. So we cannot go very fast to them uh, in order to get also like small possibilities of the reform is still on the table or else nobody is going to talk to us. Yeah, Komnas Perempuan is already being stigmatized as Gerwani kind of movement, which is, uh, I mean, like in Indonesian context, I, I'm sure that you are aware of. Uh, that is also another layer of difficulty if you're already being stigmatized. Gerwani as a communist and feminist as a Western kind of idea is always being utilized to undermine uh, the whole advocacy of women's rights. So, yeah. So, I mean, like, <clears throat> in Komnas Prompuan, what I learned is actually how to balance uh, in a pro radical feminist idea in the same time keep kind of a space for negotiation to see uh, that our suggestions going to be taken up. I mean, like recommendations to be at least considered by, you know, like, so it's it's kind of sad, but that's, that's the way it is at the same time. One thing I wanted to ask was, you know, when you operate or engage in, in feminist discourse in Indonesia, often you'll find unlikely allies, for instance, social conservatives or religious groups, but they agree with us because they have an understanding of women and children as having to be protected and therefore they can also be policed. So sometimes I feel like it's easy to argue for women's rights in Indonesia in part because there's this slippage or this misunderstanding wherein, yeah, we all agree that women women should be given rights in Indonesia, but that's on the basis of an idea of women having to be protected or women as victims. Uh, and therefore, if they step out of that role, they should be policed. How do you manage those kinds of relationships in building coalitions for policy reform? Oh, that is a hard question. <laughs> I don't know whether I can actually answer that quite adequately. Um, I don't know, actually, Jackie. Uh, sometimes uh, we do not go to the debate in the first meeting. Uh, it's better to have kind of space for trust building, first of all. And uh, I think we do have the luxury of uh, having 15 commissioners who come from various backgrounds. And some of them are also uh, Muslim theologians themselves. So if there are the religious groups that actually have more protectionist perspective, then we will leave the uh, commissioners who are scholars in Islamic teachings to talk to them in Arabic, even if it's necessary. 
theory with all of the verses and everything else to change their mind, right? I actually witnessed once uh, in my first term as commissioner, and this is a conversation with a high-profile officer in the Ministry of Home Affairs who firstly object Komnas Perempuan Recommendation to uh, revoke the discriminatory bylaws because he believes as the the authority of the states, he also has the responsibility to enact religion uh, norms. So I asked the commissioners, uh, Hussein Muhammad, who is also a, a Kiai, right, to talk about, I mean, like this is in Arabic, right, the, the leaders in, in Islamic concept and how he should look at the diversity of the public as part of the, the responsibility of Islamic leadership. So it's very interesting conversation to join. And it actually conferred this official's belief. And he's actually the one who installed uh, the authority for national a national authority to revoke the bylaws. Unfortunately, later this article is being annulled by the Constitutional Court. But I've seen it works. Uh, I think the most difficult one is political elites because you don't really know where they stand, whether it's really their perspective or it's just interest of getting photos. I, I find it's more difficult to navigate around the political elites rather than the religious groups. Oh my God, I love that observation. The, you know, the the vacuous nature of ideology for political elites makes them more difficult to negotiate with. You know, the absence of any kind of principled action makes them more difficult. That's funny. It is. It is. It is. It is. I mean, like, those who are supporting the bylaws can be from Nationals Party. And it was like, you know, the, the guidelines of your party should not actually uh, let or, or you become the supporters of this. And it's like, yeah, but then the party will not help me to gain more voters. So that's like a very practical answer to get. I was like, <laughs> what are we going to do with this, right? Whilst you have only like a, a minority protesting against it. I have one last question for you, Andy. You mentioned it's hard to work as a women's activist in Indonesia. It's hard to shuck off suspicions about Komnas Perempuan being a hotbed of communism or a hotbed of Western liberalism. How do you sustain yourself in these long-term struggles? What kinds of relationships or activities um, give you joy and give you stamina and endurance in a long fight like this? Hmm. Actually, I have my burnt out back in 2014 in my first term as commissioner. I joined Komnas Perempuan in 2000, so and I just have like a year break for my master degree. But I, I seriously, uh, I mean, like experience burned out by then. I remember that I even yelled to officials in in our meetings, uh, since I feel like why am I the one who is doing the, all the homeworks and having the sleepless nights when those who are in authority did not actually do things right. So I decided not to go to my second terms. But in the same time, I worked with the survivors and I always find myself learning so much about their uh, endurance, their spirit, high spirits, and how they support you in various ways yeah, that you wouldn't expect and you find refuge in it at the same time. And then you find yourself 
uh, well, you know, the only way to see a possibility of improvement is actually to keep on taking part of the movement itself, not necessarily within Komnas Perempuan, yeah, but actually in the movement. And I think because of that, Indonesia managed to get the progress despite it's not as much as or as fast as we want. Uh, and it's still an ongoing battle, actually, at both national and regional levels. And we do actually face a new threats every now and then. And the other thing is I love eating. So good food makes me relax. <laughs> <laughs> good food definitely fixes everything. Well, thanks for spending this time with us. Thank you also for having me here. I hope that I'll have more time to speak about Indonesia and the progress and challenges as well as the setbacks of women's rights. Yeah, so hopefully that'll be next time. Yeah, thanks. Thanks to Andy Yantriani, head of Komnas Perempuan, the Indonesian National Commission on Violence Against Women. If you'd like to hear more from Andy and other activists, scholars and policymakers on gender equality and diversity in Indonesia, you can watch all the presentations on ANU Indonesia Project's YouTube channel. That's ANU Indonesia Project at YouTube. Talking Indonesia will return in a fortnight, but you can find the entire Talking Indonesia podcast archive at the Indonesia at Melbourne blog or wherever you get your podcasts. Until next time, this has been Jackie Baker. Bye for now.